Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show author of the best-selling book and movie, Fight Club, author of my favorite book about writing called Consider This, and author of a brand new book called People, Places, Things, My Human Landmarks, uh, which is kind of an autobiographical essay. Chuck Palahniuk is one of my all-time favorite writers. He's been on the podcast before. I love talking to him about writing. Here he is. This is how life is for me most of the time, just without you know, tour. I I tell that to people as well. Like the economic lockdowns were the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of lifestyle. Like I never had to leave my room and <laughs> I didn't I just don't have to go to meetings, don't have to go to conferences, don't have to speak anywhere. Uh it was great. Uh two months ago I had COVID. For the next two months, I had a great excuse. Sorry, I can't go. I COVID, I can't go there. And so, but now though, things, it's harder to come up with excuses. What was it like? I mean, what did it feel like to have COVID? It was the worst. I had it really bad. It was the worst experience ever. Like in the middle of it, first off, it lasts forever. It's like a flu maybe lasts two or three days. COVID was like worse than a, at least my version of it was worse than a flu. And it was at least like 15 to 20 days. And- and in the middle of it, if I had a gun, I, I might've killed myself. Like it was so much like pain and just, it was just bad. And my wife was in the hospital too from it. And I was, we had just gotten a new place. And so there was no furniture, no internet. I was just no food. I was just sweating all day, no cellular service and just pain all day, no TV or anything. So it was really annoying. Wow, it sounds, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, but you know what? It's my fault. Like, I didn't get vaccinated. And and then everybody who knew I had COVID, they would write me all the time and say, did you get vaccinated? Did you get vaccinated? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't get it. So then they started thinking I was some, like, right-wing racist, you know, because I didn't get vaccinated. But I would try to tell people I was just lazy. Like, I really just didn't like leaving my room. So I never went to my appointments and, and then I got, and then I got sick. Oh, I'm sorry. And your wife's okay. Yeah. She's, she's okay now. Everybody's okay. And 
but thank you. You so you haven't you haven't gotten it, so you're you're lucky. You, I'm, I'm assuming you got vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. So so look, you have you have new book, people's places and things, and just like uh, cons- you know, the book book we talked about last, consider this. Uh, you've been writing lately about writing, and and you've written like nonfiction before, but I'm just curious what's What's gotten you, you're still writing fiction, of course, but what's gotten you interested in writing about writing? You know, actually, uh, People, Places, Things was just an essay. It's just a long essay on Scribd. And yeah. uh, and I used kind of uh, the admonitions I give to beginning writers when they bring me memoir. And I use all those admonitions for, uh, as kind of a structuring device during in my own essay. Um, it's it's just agony when uh, starting writers bring in memoir because they're so attached to it, they're so close to it that they cannot deal with it as a kind of craft exercise and they can't change a word of it and they just want to get it vomited onto the page and they can't pace it. And it always ends up either terrible, terrible or inadvertently comic. And that's even worse when someone brings in the biggest trauma of their life and everyone who's hearing it is just suppressing this enormous laugh because it's being told so flippantly that it, that it occurs as this kind of, you know, piss take. Yeah, you know, and, and there's, there's two almost contradictory points you bring up, which is uh, don't overload it with emotion. And at the same time, don't try to pretend you don't have any emotion. So you, you give an example, uh, a very basic example, like, you know, on the day of my 17th rape, uh, you know, and, and like that person's trying to remove emotion as if they're above it. And they're writing with this godlike perspective on, on past events, which you can't do because we're not God. And on the other hand, if you load in too much emotion, it's like, it's like you said, you, you, the emotion has to be, uh, out there with the reader, not necessarily with you, but how do you, how do you balance these two extremes? And I know they're extremes, but how do you find that fuzzy line in the middle when you're writing memoir? You know, uh, boy, uh, it's kind of like a comic and the comics we, I really like, I really hate. I hate the comics that laugh at their own jokes and that crack themselves up and can barely tell their joke because they're laughing at it so much themselves. and in a way, I want the joke to to be a little formula that acts on me and that the comic has kind of gotten past. Uh, and so often with memoir, uh, people either, number one, they become overwhelmed because they haven't really dealt with what they're depicting. And uh, number two, they're trying to prove that they have processed past it. And so they do, they either are so attached to it that they kind of weep for themselves or they're trying to prove that they're so past it that they trivialize it and they make it comic. And so either of those extremes doesn't work. And so in a way you have to be able to go into it as a camera and depict it in such an objective way that the drama isn't mitigated, it isn't lessened, but the drama occurs in in the audience as opposed to within you. Uh, So there really is this kind of complete unpacking and complete depiction in a very cinematic way so the effect is out there gosh there's so many directions i want to go because the way you write this essay people's places and things is structurally so interesting and and also how you i don't really get the sense even that in this essay slash small book i don't even get the sense that you tell your most traumatic story you're kind of weaving all around it interweaving other stories and plus your own story in order to give the reader a sense but not a finality and and i'm just curious there's a there's a lot of things popping up but i'm just curious how much is omission uh uh part of creativity in general i know that's a big question ultimately i don't think you you can dictate you can't uh you can't show gwyneth paltrow's head in the box you have to create the circumstances that allow the reader to take that final step and the reader to uh, to sort of visualize what that thing is. That if you take them all the way to showing Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box, a moment later, later they're going to be laughing. And so you have to have lead them to the horror 
but the horror has to be like Rosemary's Baby. It has to be within the reader's mind, within the viewer's mind, because if you literally show it, it, it becomes laughable. Yeah, and it's almost like you have to you have to give the reader the reader wants a conclusion. As soon as the story, let's say, we're, 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 let's take a very basic example, like a genre novel. First chapter, a, a, a six-year-old child is kidnapped and the rest of the novel is, can the dad plus a detective, you know, find the child and, you know, they go through the standard, you know, lots of different possibilities and blah, blah, blah. It seems like the reader wants it concluded on the very next chapter. Like that was the reader feels like he would be satisfied if this child is, is, is rescued immediately. But what creates art is stretching it out as long as possible, going in different directions, but then backing up, getting the reader almost to the conclusion, but not quite. It wasn't that guy after all, it was maybe down this way. And I'm giving a, a genre like example, but it seems like it feels like every great story is told that way. Yeah, you know, think my 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 really crude metaphor that someday I'm going to get busted. But this is what I tell my students: I say, imagine if the stripper walked out on stage fully naked and said, "Yeah, these are my genitals. Any questions?" <laughs> that would be it. There's no tension. There's no gradual reveal. There's no tease. Well, uh, you you say in the book even um, it's not how you look after you take off your clothes; it's how you take off your clothes. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah, and I, I I think I think that's very beautiful because, and just real quickly, let's talk about the structure of people's places and things. So you take these stories in your life, these whether they're objects or places or people like friends, and you have your own each one of these objects or places or people they have an imprint on them of your story. So you're able to describe this person, but ultimately it's all of your story. And structurally, that reminds me uh, almost immediately of the things they carried by mm. Tim O'Brien, where he's basically telling the story of the Vietnam War by the objects each soldier is carrying. And there's many examples like this. That's the one that most sticks to mind. But do you think every, do you think every one of your novels even there's a structure like that. Uh, I think there's similarities in that my novels have characters, through line characters who do actions and I, they have very limited settings. So I don't have to keep introducing and, and losing tension by creating a new setting. And also they have objects that stay in the story throughout the entire story. And that gradually accrue meaning because they, they disappear, they reappear, they disappear, they reappear. And then they gradually move from a very trivial thing to a very profound thing because they've accumulated so much psychological baggage, so much emotional weight. And so, yeah, I think I kind of do that same minimalist trick by limiting my characters, limiting what they say, limiting the settings and limiting objects. But all of those things come from the theater. In a way, when I write a book or a story, I'm basically writing a play. What do you mean by that? Because, uh, you know, obviously in a play, it's harder to get into the inner thoughts and reflections of the characters, whereas the novel you can. And often that's why people say the book was better than the movie because the movie, whether it's a popular movie or not, it's hard getting really into the mind of, of the character. And in minimalism, you're really dissuaded against getting into the mind. You, you, you're not supposed to really dictate uh, expository thoughts that you stay away from thought verbs like think, believe, uh, remember, know, any of those thought verbs. You have to be like an actor and you have to depict a behavior that makes that revelation or that belief or that thought occur in the reader's mind. You can't just dictate it. And that's, that's why minimalism is kind of like a play because also a play has such a limited window of time, limited uh, setting, limited number of objects, limited characters. And in minimalism, you're adhering to that same scarcity so that you can make the most of those limited things as quickly as possible. Right. So, so, and you bring up, um, you know, writers like Kurt Vonnegut, Joseph Heller, uh, and so on, who, you know, they experienced 
the horrors of, you know, they experienced particularly horrible things in World War II. Like, you know, Vonnegut experienced the, the bombing of Dresden. It was the, the worst bombing of, of the war. Uh, and if he had just written a book describing in detail how horrible it was and exactly what he saw, people might not be interested. It might be too horrible. It might be, oh, I read that in a history book. It might be glorifying it in some, in some way that he experienced something beyond, you know, the normal human experience. So he kind of takes it to an extreme where it almost becomes a, a pulp or it does become a pulp science fiction book where the main character is time traveling from Dresden to later in his life when, when he's a dentist. It almost doesn't seem minimalist because of that, but maybe can you make the connection? So I'm talking about Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, can you make the connection between that and and minimalism and and what he's doing? Like, how do you think he thought of that particular structure? Oh boy, I'm going to go down another road before I go down that road. Okay. And uh, and in the essay itself, I was kind of alluding to the fact that these these four really big big writers, and they're very different writers, as Salinger was in the German forest getting the, the shit bombed out of him when he was writing uh, Catcher in the Rye. And Joseph Heller was getting the shit bombed out of him when he was writing Catch-22. Vonnegut was in Dresden, Slaughterhouse-Five. And Patrick Dennis, of all people, was writing Anti-Mame, uh, uh, the, the whole Mame series, and was reinventing himself as this comic writer, even while he was uh, caring for wounded and dead soldiers in Italy all through World War II. I, I didn't know that, by the way, about him. And Auntie Mame is my wife's favorite movie, so I'm going to have to tell her this. And all of those writers took these fantastically grim circumstances and pushed through them into absurdity. They, they took tragedies that should have overwhelmed them, and they sort of flopped over into this kind of absurdist, crazy humor and it's very similar to what soldiers did coming out of World War I, because you had guys like Nathaniel West, who wrote Day of the Locusts, and creating this genre that's come to be known as absurdist existentialism. And we really moved beyond absurdist existentialism, which I think also occurred in the, in the books of Tom Robbins, that you had these writers who had been through fantastic ordeals and were able to turn them into a kind of absurdist, chaotic uh, way of being with that chaos. And I think to some extent, Vonnegut wasn't a minimalist. He was a modernist, but he did really limit the elements in all three of those, those storylines that are in the book. And he found this great device for zapping back and forth between them. Uh, but he does bring very little into each of them I mean, uh, one is a, a science fiction story, which all takes place on Tralfamador. So it's all one set. And one is a road trip story, which is him being taken prisoner in Germany and then marched across the landscape, eventually arriving in Dresden. And then one is a kind of suburban Cheever story, which is him as a dentist with, with the wife. And so he takes these three very different stories, but they are very traditional classic stories. And he just finds a smart way of intercutting between them. Uh, so in that way, I would say he's a minimalist writer. Yeah, and it, 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 I would say, I would wonder if it's it's minimalist also because it's very, written very simply in the sense that you could picture this as a kid reading a pulp science fiction novel. It, it has that kind of form where each story is, now there, there's emotional sophistication in the stories, but each story is a little bit, you know, there's a light humor that overriding all of them and it's simple language. Anybody could understand each story by itself. And then it's how he's interweaving them where you kind of get the horror of this guy's life. Well, and, and let's not forget that on the front end, there's a kind of reality device, like the, like the, you know, the Cone brothers put that single card on the front of Fargo that said, these events are based on true events and we have changed the names to protect the innocent and blah, 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 which was all made up. You know, Fargo was a made up story, but initially it was too slapstick. It was too much like uh, Raising Arizona. So they put that single card nonfiction uh, device on the front. And on the front of Slaughterhouse-Five, you have 
Vonnegut as Vonnegut in his kitchen and the war buddy comes over and they're drinking and they're talking about being in the war together. And his wife comes and goes and she's really annoyed, but it's very much a kind of grounded scene in which the two of them are talking about this book that needs to be written. And they're talking about the children's crusade. So they're talking about sort of real world things that ground the entire book before it turns into this Billy Pilgrim kind of extreme extravagant thing. And I think it's that grounding device that, that makes it in the same way that the, the, the newsreel on the front of Citizen Kane makes the rest of that movie palatable and very real. That's really interesting. Like you're right. So in the first chapter of Slaughterhouse Five, the wife is actually really annoyed at mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut because she says he's going to write a novel glorifying the war and he promises her that he won't. So why do you think he felt the need to put that in at the very beginning? He's kind of telegraphing what he's going to do. Uh, I have this kind of theory. I think of them as uh, uh, thumbnail, thumbnail stories that they have to, the author knows the story is going to be so incredible that they have to show you the horizontal plot. They have to basically summarize all the plot events before they show you the actual story so that you're not caught up in the plot itself. They want mm -hmm. you to be above the plot in that Bearhall Brecht way. Do you remember the movie Titanic? Yeah. What is the first story that's told in Titanic? I don't, I don't, oh, F, it's they're older, right? It's like 70 years after the fact. Wrong. Oh, no, I, I didn't remember that. It's, uh, you know, they bring the survivor, they bring the old woman to the exploration vessel. And then you have the, uh, the kind of doofusy, bearded, good-natured guy who runs the computer model. And he runs the computer model that runs across the screen and it's very crude, it's very sort of CAD, very green. And he demonstrates physically how the Titanic is going to hit the iceberg and what's going to happen moment by moment, and how eventually the stern is going to lift into the air, and the, and the vessel is going to break in half, and then the two will remain connected and gloved there for a moment, and then sink to the bottom. So he very glibly, very flippantly, tells us the entire story, the way that the newsreel very flippantly tells us the entire story of Charles Foster Kane's life. And in a way, kind of Vonnegut tells us the entire story so that as we go into the story and we see it unpacked and dramatized, we are gonna be less attached to figuring out physically what's going on. And that later when the ship does pop up in the air, we're gonna be smarter than the characters. And because we're smarter than those characters, we're gonna love them and we're gonna feel uh, sort of maternal or nurturing to them. We want them to survive because we know how they might survive. Um, and, you know, and putting that, that front piece on Slaughterhouse-Five allows us to see this, where the story is going so that we're less engaged in wondering where the story is going. And we're, we're more engaged in the emotion of the story. Right, that's, that's fascinating. So in a sense, we know exactly, even physically, what the main characters are gonna be doing when the sto story ends. And it's in, the entire movie then is connecting the dots. And, and again, the reader is denied resolution throughout the whole movie. Like, you know, at first she rejects him and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a battle in, in the ship for, that, for those hands to come together. And, and if, we, we, if we didn't know what was going to happen moment by moment, and this is funny because when I saw the movie in theaters, there was an old, old woman who was obviously taken out of her rest home for the day with her family. And throughout the movie, she was very loudly saying, are they gonna ride this ship the whole movie? When does this ship get somewhere? When does this ship get to New York? When did they get off this ship? And it was so funny because, you know, we knew, like in all the Titanic narratives, how it's gonna end. Right. But if we didn't, if we didn't know how it was going to end, we would be acting like the same very old woman and expecting the story to actually go somewhere. We wouldn't be in the moment anymore. We would always be kind of at the next moment.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You begin this book by saying, don't tell your most important story first in a memoir. Let's say we'll use the Titanic as an example again. What's the most important story there? It seems like you can argue that them clasping hands at the end is the most important story. Did they start with their most important story or or am I uh, not thinking of it right? You know, uh, the disconnect there is that, hmm, is it kind of, maybe James Cameron's most important story. But the odd thing is that uh, it's not a real story. Uh, It's the story itself is kind of, the real story is used as kind of set dressing. And we're seeing fictionalized invented characters. So I I find it hard to compare the two. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe though the most important story actually is her changing heart about him in some way and that you know that's a, a a deeper most important story in the titanic and that you know the fa- just facts like oh their hands are together at the end that's not that's just a detail it's not it's not maybe the most important story the most important story is her waking up to her love for for this character boy and you could also argue it's uh, the story is the end of the edwardian period uh that the emotional you know crux was the moment all those plates tumbled off the shelves. Uh, and in a way, it's also like film, it's a montage from which you want a lot of people to sort of take their own Rorschach test message away from the story. Uh, because you can't dictate a single meaning that is going to appeal to everyone. 
And so for women, it's going to be about the uh, women's liberation. Uh, for people on a social, social economic class, it's going to be about the end of this Edwardian aristocracy. Uh, there's just so many different stories that so many people can take away as their own. I like the idea of looking at a story, a novel, or any piece of art as like a Rorschach test. Mm -hmm. And that corresponds with the minimalism, you know, that you, you, you tell a story that's real to you in the best way you, you can, but you want to kind of withhold whatever is not, it, it seems like the, the, the idea here is don't write something that can be figured out by the reader. And this allows for these omissions allow for readers to see many different things in the, in the missing pieces here, even though you're telling the whole story, but like, if it's clear, the reader is going to cross the street, don't say, and then the reader crossed the street. Like if like anything that's going to be clear, leave out, but that also leaves room for the, for the reader to come in and, and fill in the gaps. Right. You want the reader to have a participation. And if you're so constantly telling the reader what to think and dictating, then you either, you preclude that participation, but you risk uh, uh, alienating or excluding the reader altogether. Uh, so the reader needs to be as much a character as anything else in the story. So, but I, I got really intrigued by this statement though, of don't tell the most important story in the beginning. And particularly for, for nonfiction, like you see a lot of memoirs that are, or autobiographies that are, are written by someone who, who had an incredible life, but is not an experienced writer. And it always starts off like I was born in Kansas city, Missouri. My, my grandfather was a ranch and whatever. And it's kind of boring to me for the first three or four chapters until they get to their life, as opposed to hearing about what kind of school they went to and when they were three years old and, and all this stuff. So it seems like you could, one could take it too far in, in memoir writing. Like let, let's say someone was, uh, a, a journalist and they visited a, they're doing a story about an African warlord and the, the warlord does something horrific, like kills a little boy right in front of them. Wouldn't that be a good place to start the story? And then you back up by saying, what's this guy even doing there in the first place? Well, and, and you just described in, to some extent, uh, John Krakauer's Into the Wild. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I have not read that one. Uh, we know Chris McCandless starves to death and dies and is found in a bus in Alaska. And so in a way, we know Charles Foster Kane lived and died. We know the horizontal. We, you pick up a, a Grace Kelly autobiography and you know the horizontal. You know that Grace Kelly was Grace Kelly and then she married and she died. So in a way, you're doing exactly what was done in Titanic or what was done in Citizen Kane in that we're getting the entire, you walk into the story already knowing the, knowing the horizontal. So that's why you're going to be with those first boring four chapters because you already more or less know where you're going and you're more focused on how you get there at that point. And that's like in uh, The Ring. Do you remember the movie The Ring? No. Uh, yeah. Naomi Watts, there's this uh, video that people watch. And as soon as you see this video, even if you see it by accident, you get a phone call that says you're going to die in seven days. And the video is a, a series of really strange black and white sort of artsy images. And so the, for the entire rest of the movie, we are discovering what each of those images represents. And so it's like the game of concentration that used to be on television. You get that little dopamine hit every time you connect a past event to an image in that video that you've seen several times. So it's this, this constant sort of trail of breadcrumbs. And every time you, you tie one of the breadcrumbs to an actual event, you get the big dopamine hit. You know, oh, this is where Charles Foster Kane builds the opera house for his mistress. And so in a way, when you pick up a celebrity autobiography or you pick up Into the Wild by Krakauer, you, you know what's going to happen. You know where it's going to go. And because you, you already know, you're going to be much more focused on the how instead of the what. How do we get there instead of where, where are we going to go? But still, would you start off a memoir with these boring chapters about their grandfathers and grandmothers and, you know, they lived in a small one bedroom house. And, and then typically that's not how they start. Typically they start with a gripper 
Mm-hmm. And even if it's a very short gripper, and maybe that's why you don't remember these, is that typically it's a kind of, they start in media ray, they start at the, at the crisis moment, and then they drop into flashback to the second chapter. And that yeah. is what I really recommend to, to most people who are going to write memoir. Do you remember A Mayflower Madam by Sydney yeah. Biddle Barrows, 1986? Yeah. She starts that memoir by saying, and then one day I got a message that said the FBI is looking for you. And she's right at the point of about to be arrested for running this enormous escort service. And that's where it cuts. And then we drop into deep flashback, her growing up, her college, how she got into the business, because we know where we're going to eventually end up at. We're going to end up with her being arrested. So, so does that correspond though with don't tell your most important story in the beginning? Maybe you hint at it, but you don't finish it. Right. And just by also by saying, don't tell your most important story at the beginning by, by saying, we're not going to do this. I'm introducing the fact that we are going to do this. Hmm. The first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club. And I think the literary term is apatio, where you basically say, we are not going to talk about this at the beginning of the great Gatsby. Nick Carraway says, my heart is broken. I'm a curmudgeon. I hate everything. Don't ask me why. I don't want to talk about it. And then boom, we drop into flashback and it's all about Nick Carraway. Right. So, and also when you start off, which is this essay is ostensibly a a memoir of you, when you start off by saying, don't tell your most important story, for all the reader knows, you're lying. (laughs) That line might be the most important story. The fact that you feel like you can't tell your most important story yet. We don't, we, we don't really know what's happening. You know, and it's just kind of a framing device because it's kind of a meta device because I'm saying basically, first we're going to acknowledge this, that this is a story. I am going to tell you a story. Do you remember the little prologue that's on the front of the glass menagerie? No, I don't. It's glorious. It's Tom. And Tom is saying, I'm going to tell you a memory story. I'm going to tell you about something that happened a long time ago. And I am the opposite of a stage magician. A stage magician shows you fake things that look real. And I'm going to show you real things that will look fake. And that's my job. And so it is that kind of Victorian porch, that kind of acknowledgement that this is a story. And in a way, it allows you, it allows the reader to let their guard down because you're acknowledging the mechanics of this thing by talking about it as a craft thing, as an exercise, as an act of writing. And that allows you to go into it with ultimately a greater kind of reality. So you charmed people by saying, I'm, I'm about to tell you a made up thing. And then you tell them a real thing. And you can get to a place that's much more kind of emotionally uh, uh, devastating. And, you know, it, it, it seems like the, the unexpected is the key to quality fiction. When, when the author sets the stage for something and, and then unexpected things happen after that. Certainly in Fight Club, it's, the reveal is incredibly unexpected. And how do you know in advance that you're not telegraphing too much to the reader that how you're going to end. Cause it seems like it's, it's so subjective with you. You know, the ending. No, I don't. Okay. That's interesting. That's the fallacy. And that's, that is my litmus test is if I know where this is going, then the reader is going to know where it's going. And if I know where this is going, it's not going to change me is I'm not going to be a different person, a more enlightened person by the end of this thing. And so what is the point of doing this unless I'm going to end this emotionally shaken and with a greater awareness of who I am than before I started it. And so I didn't know that the narrator and Tyler, you know, were, you know, whatever in fight club, I never know what the, uh, what the twist is going to be the true nature of everything. When did you know? I knew when I got there. I knew when I got to that point 
in the book and in the rewrites that I'll know where the, the mechanical breakdown is going to be. And in Fight Club, the mechanical breakdown was in that at the very beginning, there was a violation of the social contract. There was a man going to support groups for terminally ill people. And he was allowing them to think that he was also dying so that they would care for him and they would love him. And he did not have to reciprocate that care for them. He could get love without reciprocating love. But the moment those people realized that he was faking, then that's the mechanical breakdown of the story. And so in the, in the book, at least, that's the threat of Marla, is that Marla is somebody who knows the giant social violation that he is. And she is also that giant social violation. Uh, and that they do generate that, that chaos, that breakdown for both of them. They, they both expose each other to the group. Um, this is a similar mechanical breakdown in Choke, the man who pretends to, to choke to death so people will save his life. And in a way that they will care for him and, and love him after that. But as soon as two of those people meet and they both realize they've been fooled, the entire sort of social, you know, sort of house of cards that the novel is, it breaks down. And so typically going into a novel, I will know what the mechanical breakdown is going to be. And that's usually at the end of the second act. But beyond that, it's got to surprise me if it's going to surprise anybody. That's so interesting. It reminds me, I, I recently read a story about Elmore Leonard, the mystery writer, and Elmore Leonard calls his friend Otto, and he calls Otto and he says, Otto, I'm, 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 something terrible happened. And I was like, what? And Elmore says, I'm only halfway through my novel, and the main character was sitting in a bar, the hero's sitting in a bar, and this guy comes in and shoots him, and now he's dead, and I don't know what to do. And Otto's like, well, why don't you just not use that chapter? And Elmore's like, you don't understand. He's dead. <laughs> and it's because the character, it's like what you just said, the, the, you know, the characters sort of are sort of coming into life while he's writing it. He can't change their story. Uh, do you, do you think most novelists write that way? Or do you think they f fully outline it out? Like if you're reading a book, can you tell if it's been fully outlined out or if, if, uh, if a, a writer is sort of the characters are coming from him in some, uh, you know, creative way. I think I can tell. And there's an old Stephen King sort of observation that, that when you're writing really well, you are sort of excavating a relic or an object that's been buried. And the idea is to, to try to um, extricate this thing from the ground as intact as possible. And so in a way with Elmore Leonard, there was some aspect of Elmore Leonard that, required that character to be, to be killed. And you have to sort of go with those impulses. Otherwise, uh, you are controlling the story instead of letting the story control you. And if you're always in control of the story, then it's never gonna be anything more than just you. And it's only gonna be the you that you know. And so you're trying to get to the you that you do not know, the secrets that you kind of keep from yourself. And by going with the impulse, like Elmore Leonard, then you are following that sort of unaware portion of you that you're trying to, to discover. And what's the point of this problem solving exercise if you're creating the problems you already know how to solve? The whole point is to create problems you don't know how to solve so that it's, it's an adventure for you and for the reader. Right, I guess if you know how to solve it, it it's gonna be very hard to not telegraph what's going to happen. Like it's much more likely the reader is gonna be like, oh, I get it, I don't have to finish this novel. Yeah. And so it's interesting, like when you wrote this, this essay, People's Places and Things, uh, did you have this notion that, okay, this is a good structure, I'm gonna start with this structure, I'm also gonna have kind of the, the idea that this is, I'm giving advice about writing. And then from there, did you, did, did the stories kind of come out of you? Uh, like you, and probably you knew roughly what emotional point you wanted to, to reveal, but from there, did the stories just come out of it? You weren't sure you, you knew you were going to focus on people, places and things that were in your life, but do you know, did you know exactly which people's places and things? 
the only thing I really knew was that I wanted to write about human beings that act as, as landmarks for communities. And I wanted to start from the most innocuous one, which was uh, a, a student of mine is a bartender in Tacoma. And he says in Tacoma, everyone sort of triangulates off of their relationship or their family's relationship to Ted Bundy. And when people in Tacoma get together, they kind of establish their pecking order by how Ted adjacent they are. And I, I thought that was such an interesting thing because whenever I talk to people in other cities in Milwaukee, everybody has a, uh, a Jeffrey Dahmer story. And every city kind of has a human landmark that people sort of echolocate themselves in relation to. And I wanted to depict that starting from sort of the most innocuous uh, to more and more extreme versions of that. And then ultimately to kind of arrive at one that wasn't sort of either a complete victim, which is the one from my life, the person who was the landmark in our town, to, and not, not a total villain like Jeffrey Dahmer, but to somebody who was in a way a hero, who was neither of those two sort of victim or villain extremes. And that was the whole point of the story was to eventually come around to this guy that kind of inspired everybody. And, and, and right, we're never quite sure because of your interweaving your sessions with the therapist, we're still not quite sure hero or villain. And I think you, you, you leave some of that up to the, the reader, or at least, you know, I, I felt that way, but also I love that idea of what you call the Tacoma game, like how, where everybody, everybody's past is somehow Ted adjacent and how far are you away from Ted? And I use, maybe I read too much into it, but I use that as I was thinking you were saying, look, all of these people, places, and things are Chuck adjacent and how far <laughs> are they from the traumatic <laughs> incident of Chuck's life? And, and from that also, you can start to learn, uh, Chuck's story just by seeing how far different events are you know, how Chuck adjacent they are, you kind of, it sort of defines where Chuck is in that. Yeah, I, this is the embarrassing part because when I originally wrote it and turned it in, it ended. I never really came into the story. It had, it didn't have that last third. It was not going to be my story. I was going to reveal things about everybody else. I wasn't going to reveal anything about myself, but my editor kept pushing it back because she knew the story that she wanted, which is the story about what almost happened to me as a kid. And she knew that was there. And so she was always throwing it back to me and saying, no, it's just not there yet. And I did not want to put that story in. I did not want to go there. I did not want to possibly hold my dead mother up for judgment and ridicule by people. And so that's in a way why I am trying to be so diplomatic at the end is I'm really trying to protect people who had bad impulses, but didn't really act on them. And at the same time though, because like your mother situation, like you said, you, you always hold back from saying everything that happened to her and you give, you give pieces and it makes the reader think and it, and it allows the reader to make a, either a judgment or a conclusion or whatever, but nothing is fully I don't want to say nothing's fully taken to completion because that maybe that in itself is taking it to completion. Like nothing in, in reality, really, you don't know your mother, what was really going on inside of her head. You were just observing as a child what was happening. And so in some sense, then we're understanding again, oh, this is Chuck adjacent. It affected him. Then the mother goes off and now we're back with Chuck in the story, knowing something new about him that we can draw our own conclusions from. Which is another device in the story, the, these ideas of exhibits. And so there, there are photographs within the story that are labeled, you know, people's exhibit A, B, C, D, E. And so in a way, I am kind of putting together the, the case, the scenario that a lawyer would present in court. And I don't think, I don't want to dictate innocent or guilty. I want that distinction to occur in the jury's mind. And so... It's, it's not about being too much of a bully, because I think if you dictate too much and be too expository, then you become a bully. Well, and also these, these photos are uh, a way to ground the story 
again, it's like you t- at different parts of the whole essay, it's like you're stapling the ground to this part. So people know it's not just you off in the air telling random different stories. This is real. This is a, this is a truth, whether it is or not. Like, you know, let's say <laughs> if it was a novel as opposed to a memoir, but you're saying this is a truth. And so it reminds the reader again, oh, there's something important here. Like, like in a law case, someone's life is being judged and here are the exhibits as opposed to you just telling stories. Like we're, we're grounding to the fact that there's a thread. And also the photos act as the things because that's the other, the third element of these, uh, the, the essay is that it's about people, but those people represent places and people, they have left behind souvenirs. And those souvenirs are, you know, when uh, the Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, uh, the Tate family held an auction of Sharon Tate's last possessions. And friends of mine went trying to buy the last mascara brush that Sharon Tate had used. And when the bidding got up over $20,000, they dropped out. But somebody got that mascara brush. And so all of these people throughout the story have left behind these physical objects, which are like the photographs themselves, which are in a way these relics that prove the the one-time physical existence of a person. Yeah. And I guess that relates back to Kurt Vonnegut, Joseph Heller, you know, these world war two writers, you know, they experienced this horror and like for Kurt Vonnegut, it was, took him over 20 years to write slaughterhouse five. And, you know, this was an important relic or, or ghost in his life. And, uh, you, 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 you can't really, he can't, he couldn't really shed it. He couldn't really move on. Eventually he had to write this beautiful novel about it. And I'm wondering if every good act of fiction, not only does it include the skills of a, of a good writer, but should touch upon some deeper moment of, of your life. You know, the man who taught me writing, Tom Spanbauer, he, he ran a method that he called dangerous writing where you have to write about some unresolved aspect of your life uh, using as much of a metaphor as you can, um, because it is that sort of therapeutic, that, that uh, processing that brings you back to working on it over and over. And if nothing else, you exhaust your emotional reaction to whatever that issue was. And when you're no longer reactive to it, then the issue magically disappears in your life. And so, a lot of this just goes, it's just that basically, you know, what is that drive that brings you back to the page? Why are you writing this story? And that story has got to be serving you first, or it's never going to serve anybody else. Thanks for listening to part one. Part two is also available today. We dive deep into the writing process. Available today, part two with Chuck Palahniuk. Listen to that too.